at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a former co-host, Maria Gerard. Um, she is the uh, she's a Penobscot tribal member uh, and a founder of the Donland Environmental Defense. And uh, we will also have uh, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation on uh, very shortly. Uh, so welcome, Maria. Thank you. Um, could you, uh, I think the last time you were on the show, we were talking about some uh, very important environmental um, issues to do with the tribe. And I believe um, Sherry was here, Sherry Mitchell was here at the time. Um, so um, could you sort of, Bring us up to date on some of the history of those and in, in where we are now. Yes, I believe the last time that um, we were here, we talked about the current um, river battle that is happening between the state of Maine government and the Penobscot Indian Nation. And um, the history obviously goes back a very, very long time, I say since the beginning of statehood. Um, there's been uh, cultural conflicts around the uses of the waterway. And um, most recently in this conflict, um, in 2012, the state of Maine government issued a letter to Penobscot Nation chief and, and council, essentially redefining the ancient reservation and uh, declaring all of a sudden in 2012 that it was the state's opinion that our reservation did not include any portion of our ancestral river. And so there's been um, a legal battle happening, Penobscot Nation versus Janet Mills, and um, this has been ongoing since 2012, and the case is actually a, um, a case a fight for Penobscot inherent and treaty-reserved sustenance fishing rights in their reservation. So basically, uh, with this letter, the state of Maine is saying that there are no (laughs) treaty-reserved fishing rights because there's no water in which to fish. And so that's a real problem for um, Penobscots and us being a, a riverine culture who have always lived on that waterway. So um, a few things have happened since then. In July of um, 2014, the Penobscot Nation created water quality standards for their reservation waters. And this um, development of the water quality standards is not something brand new. Um, Many 
tribes across the United States are engaging in this process of developing water quality standards for their reservation. And when the Penobscot Nation put out a notice um, of these water quality standards um, statewide and asked for public feedback, the Department of uh, Environmental Protection, um, Commissioner Patty Aho, and the Attorney General, uh, Janet Mills, decided that their response was going to be to sue the federal EPA, insisting that Maine had jurisdiction over um, setting water quality standards in Indian Territory. So um, in February of 2015, the EPA agreed that according to the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, the state did in fact have that right, but that Penobscots have sustenance fishing rights, and this requires the water quality to be uh, sufficient for safely consuming the fish. And so um, the state of Maine, Governor LePage, was informed of that decision, and LePage immediately responded by writing a letter to the EPA regional administrator, Kirk Spaulding, and saying that um, basically he didn't care what the EPA had to say, they weren't going to reduce pollution in the Penobscot River, and once again threatened to sue the EPA. So it became very clear that um, the state of Maine is hell-bent on controlling that waterway. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, the most um, recent development um, in that history occurred just um, a couple weeks ago when um, LePage sent a letter on behalf of the state of Maine. And he was asking the Maine's congressional delegation in Washington to essentially interfere with the EPA's protection of um, the Penobscot sustenance fishing rights. So it seems to me that uh, our governor has done a lot of interfering. (laughs) This is just one of them. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, what was really concerning was that this letter was penned, you know, on behalf of the state of Maine. And, you know, I'd like to argue that probably everybody in the state of Maine had no idea that he would be asking them to interfere in these water protections. And so, you know, he's acting on behalf of us, but who knows? Who who knows that this is happening? Yeah. You know, I, I think the last time I checked... Um uh, Penobscot Nation tribal members are allowed to vote in Maine elections and that they're also considered Maine citizens. Absolutely. And, you know, that was that was my um, sticking point when I read that letter, um, you know, that he penned to the EPA, uh, excuse me, that he penned to the congressional delegation. Um, you know, he certainly is not representing my interests, and I'm sure that there's... Um, numerous people across the state who wouldn't agree with his assessment that, um, you know, he seems more concerned with preserving the right to pollute the river rather than ensuring um, clean water and edible fish and a healthy ecosystem for for Mainers. Right. So that's one of your, that's, is there anything new happening on that front with the, with that issue? Um, with that particular issue about... Well, let me rephrase that. Okay. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I know that you've been working quite a bit on yes. this yeah. on this issue to educate and inform uh, different communities and whatever. So update us on that effort. 
Um, well, in an effort to educate and inform people, one thing became very clear very early on uh, back in 2012, and that was that the media didn't really um, represent our best interests, that they seldom uh, told the stories that were happening around this river battle. You know, for Penobscot Nation, it was critical and, and you know, it was a major crisis, but nobody in the state of Maine really knew anything of what was happening. And a number of times... Um, you know, things would occur and there'd be absolutely no coverage. Uh, or if media did cover things, they got it wrong a lot of times because the the history is so in-depth and it's so complex and it's hard to follow, I admit that. And so um, that's when I decided to form Dawnland Environmental Defense. And um, we are an alliance of Native and non-Native peoples who are, you know, standing united in the protection of our homeland and um, very recently, we form, uh, a group of people formed a media collective, and we decided that we were going to um, capture this history in a video documentary. And so that is um, nearing completion, and it's um, being produced by the Sunlight Media Collective. And the name of the film is um, The Penobscot Ancestral River Contested Territory, and that's due to be out in October. Oh, that should be very interesting. Yeah, well... And, and, and what's it, just a very brief, what's it about? The, um, the video was going to be showing the history of Penobscot stewardship on the river, and it's going to be telling the, the story beginning from the 1700s of how the reservation was defined, uh, why it was defined. Essentially, I'll... I'll tell you that. <laughs> I won't tell you everything so you can watch the movie, but you know, our reservation was defined in the seven, in 1775 when um the new the new country was courting Penobscot and Passamaquoddies to join the American Revolution. And the leader of the Penobscots at the time was Chief Joseph Arno. And Arno um, traveled to the seat of government in Massachusetts at the time, and he told them that um, we would be willing to help defend this land um, with our American brothers in exchange for certain protections. And at that point in time, um, Penobscots had had lost a lot of land. Land was being destroyed. The um, the timber was being cut. The river was being um, filled with logs and log and debris, and the fisheries were disrupted. And there were so many awful things that had happened leading up to that point when the new, um, the new country needed our help. So Arno said, we'll help you so long as you can, you can um, preserve and reserve for us a portion of our aboriginal territory. And so our reservation that we enjoy now was um, created at that point in time with the foresight of Chief Joseph Orono wanting to reserve space for sustenance, hunting, and fishing of Penobscot people so that we would be able to live um, the same way that we had lived for thousands of years, which had sustained us really well. So our, our reservation was defined then, and it's... Um, you know, this whole story is recorded in the um, 1775 Congressional Resolves, 
where the land, uh, the territory was promised to Penobscot people in perpetuity, meaning forever, never to be changed. And the Penobscot River ran central in that territory. So this video was going to be um, beginning with that history and coming up through history leading right up to um, this current river battle. We'll be talking about um, some of the people who um, had raised their voices in protest against broken promises and broken treaties. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the Maine Indian land claims, which is you know always paramount to our history because you know that's the one the one thing that makes everything different for Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people is that um, Maine Indian land claims. So it's going to be a very um, up-to-date and contemporary history in hopes of helping people to understand what's going on right now in this state between state government and the tribes. Right. So have you put on, um, other than this film that you've done, you've written, You did you write this? or I wrote the narrative. It, um, the film is being, um, it's a collaborative work. There's about uh, six, seven people that are part of the Sunlight Media Collective. And I wrote the narrative for the film and obviously had a, a lot of, um, a lot to say about the editing and, and the images and all of that. And it's really been an exciting process. I said, gee, I feel like I missed my calling. But then again, it's never too late. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're still young. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so are you doing uh, educational workshops or um, informational sessions around the state now? Or Yeah, I've always um, done a good bit of cultural education um, you know, for maybe the past 10 years or more, I've, I've done a lot of educational outreach about Penobscot history and culture or Wabanaki history even, uh, especially when it pertains to the fisheries. And, um, and so that's something that um, is sort of a feather in my cap type of thing. And I did start doing more of it um, to help educate about this, this river battle because I think that it's critical that people in the state of Maine know that this ha is happening because, you know, it's happening on their behalf. It's their government, it's their attorney general's office that's fighting this fight against the indigenous peoples who are simply trying to retain our right to fish in that river. You know, it, it shouldn't have to be a big, drawn-out, three-year legal battle, but it is. And what I encourage people is to find out why, because the Penobscots are very, very clear where they come from. Um, this is our ancestral river. It's been promised to us. It's been reserved to us, and the reservation has been defined time and again throughout history. And now with a sweep of a pen in 2012, it seems as though the state government is poised to seize that away from us. And why? Yeah. People should be asking that question. Why, suddenly in 2012, is it imperative for the state of Maine to have control over that waterway? And on whose behalf? Because I don't think it's on behalf of the Maine people. We'll get to the... Uh answers to those questions in a, in a few minutes. So. We have a good idea of uh, who that might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're listening to WERU, Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Laurie. We're talking with Maria Girard, Penobscot Nation tribal member and activist. 
Um, I have uh, Chief Kirk Francis from the Penobscot Nation um, on the phone. Are you there? I am. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, what's new? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, a lot of things, and I think, um, you know, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show and and uh, talk about these important issues. And, uh, I was listening a little bit earlier, and um, you know, as you've been discussing, you know, the the tribes are really at a very critical place right now in terms of um, you know uh, territorial intrusion and um, environmental concerns and you know core very core cultural identity attacks that are um, putting us a very serious and challenging time. So um, so appreciate you know everyone's work around this issue because. Um, it seems to be multifaceted and uh, it really gets at, um, you know, who we are as, as a tribe and as a people. So, um, you know, recently with the, with the Environmental Protection uh, Agency decision under Maine's Clean Water Act uh, application uh, and the kind of the behavior that's, that's happened around that issue, but also, as you know, you know, we're in... Uh, in federal district court over an attempted territorial taking and uh, which really would annihilate our um, our core cultural based practice of sustenance fishing make which really what defines the tribe here so so very serious and challenging but also a very stressful time for the tribe so when is that uh, federal court hearing um so just in terms of scheduling, you know, everything has been filed with the court in the uh, uh, their oral arguments uh, on October 14th, I believe, in, uh, in the court in Portland, and, uh, and then uh, the court has the case uh, for decision at that point. Okay. Um, are there any new developments in other issues uh, on the federal level? Well, you know, we've, uh, we've been working... Uh, really hard there and in, in, um, in trying to educate people about uh, what this is really about. Now, you know, I listened to Maria earlier talk about, you know, the real lack of education around this issue due really to the, the lack. It always seems like when uh, things come to a boil and there's um, letters flying around and there's comments being made, then people start to pay attention to it a little bit, but they really lack the foundation of of kind of where these things are coming from. And so, uh, you know, we've been working hard with our uh, representation in D.C. We have excellent representation there, and um, they do a great job of making sure that um, people understand the entire picture. It's not, you know, and what's interesting about this um, EPA thing is that, um, you know, the, the tribe wasn't even involved in this fight. Uh, initially, I mean, this is regular process under the Clean Water Act. Um, and the EPA said your water quality standards don't meet the human health criteria for the determining um, uses within those territories or factors within those territories or within these ge- geographical locations. So um, these aren't just tribal issues either, although what you're seeing is them really attacking that piece of it because, well, there's other issues behind that, but there's also over half of the disapprovals are in non-tribal territory. Those 
was there's now been three different EPA decisions, and uh, you know we're we're in a post decision error on this on this whole process. So what's concerning to me is that over the past three years we have multiple correspondences from the EPA, not just with the tribe, but with um, because the tribe promulgated its own water quality standards. And as we're talking here, there's a parallel track of a treatment of state application going on um, where the tribe is seeking authority over its, to promulgate its own and enforce its own water quality within its territory. But that's a different process. But so we were working a lot with region one to um, through that issue. So you, but they were corresponding with the state of Maine on everything. Every time they talked to us, they talked to them. Every time um, there's a consultation, there's a consultation with the state. And there are multiple letters where the EPA is almost begging the state of Maine to sit down and um, and work with them and work with the tribe and let's have a conversation about um, where we're going here. And time and time again, we see the state not want to acknowledge any seat at the table for the tribe in this area. So... Um, so the concerning thing is, is I think sane people working through some sane process, like with all these issues, could find the common ground, and the tribe stands ready to do that. But we can't just sit back and allow, one, this court case is going on, and two, there are other ways to remove a people from their cultural identity, and one of them is you can destroy their environment and make it um, basically... Uh, remove their fishing rights by not being able to fish. And as we sit here, as you know, in the Penobscot, we're still under a fish consumption um, rule from decades and decades and decades of um, irresponsible behavior in the river. The river is coming back now. You know, $65 million Penobscot River Restoration Project, um, opening up 1,200 miles of habitat. We were seeing fish coming back um, in a huge, huge way. So um, this would, you know, allowing things like uh, higher levels of arsenic uh, to be in the river when there's a cancer component to that, when our community is dealing uh, with huge disparities in that in that area, um, and we believe directly tied to um, the environmental impacts over the years and lack of good sustenance-based diet, et cetera, that... Um, you know, we have a responsibility to be involved in that. And so, um, you know, it's concerning that we can't even have a conversation about um, common ground because we don't want to acknowledge any tribal authority. And the mere fact that we're having the conversation in their mind kind of elevates the tribe's status to a place they don't want us to be. So, and the reality is, and what the EPA is showing and what, you know, members of Congress are saying and what multiple Department of Interior, Justice, a whole host of people are saying is that that's just not factual. You know, this is a federally recognized tribe with treaty-based rights that um, that we have a responsibility to protect at some level. We're willing to work with you, but you got to be willing to work with us too. So I think the, the behavior all points to a very um, shotgun approach to try to um, seize control of tribal territory, particularly in the main stem of the Penobscot. Do you think that this could be, this is my conspiracy mind, (laughs) 
working. Oh, good. <laughs> we I like, like that. that, right? Yeah, okay. Um, do you think that, because you mentioned uh, earlier when you were first talking about this, that uh, there were other uh, towns or whatever that was affected, uh, that the quality of the, the water and whatever affected those other uh, places, not just tribal waters, um, and that EPA was was concerned with that as well, uh, and that if that's if that's the case, if there's other things happening beyond the the tribal uh, communities going into the the rest of the towns and whatever, and the state doesn't really want those uh, those towns to zero in on what's going on, it's sort of like one of those deals where everything is targeting on the tribe and they're not paying attention to the overall big picture. They're just using us as sort of like a target practice while they're doing other things. Mm. You know, it's really hard to understand their motivation because I think you, and this is another thing, Maine people don't have the um, access to throughout these processes is, you know, this these water quality standards are not based on things that we're saying, that the EPA is saying, that they're based on science and and what's good for human health and what's good for quality of life in Maine communities and, and conducive to a whole host of things. So um, I, be, I don't believe that this fight has a lot to do with the standards themselves. You, you look on, uh, when you start to understand the science, I mean, really, this is not a huge deal it's about making some adjustments for the long-term health of bodies of water that have particular practices in them um what this is about let's face it is that any conversation that recognizes tribal territory under a different criteria goes against what the state of maine has been saying for 40 years and that is that there is no federal relationship in maine and there is no Indian territory in Maine, as you see it throughout um, the rest of the United States, because of the land, their interpretation of the land claims. The reality is we're approaching a few hundred thousand acres of Indian territory, a majority of that held in trust by the United States. We have, um, we're self-governing within those territories. We have responsibilities to real people in the environment. And, um, and you know, we just need to get to a place of where everybody's thinking okay this is this is not real how we we are describing our state in terms of our indian tribes i mean between us and the passamaquoddy i mean it's be a half a million acres of tribal territory in the state the most indian territory east of the mississippi so you know there's a reality and then there's what they try to project and what's happening over the last um three, four years, again, from the great work of many, many people um, nationally and locally, um, they're getting pushed back on. And they're getting pushed back on by some of the um, decision makers on this issue, and so including, you know, members of Congress that just don't agree with them. So um, so I think that's frustrating. You look at the, uh, you know, the rescinding of the executive order, which basically says we're just not going to talk to you anymore because the feds are sticking up for you. And so, um, and that was all over this water quality issue. So it's just sometimes we're mired in this infantile behavior that is really rooted in not what the water quality standards are, not the fact that we are 
members in a sustenance fishery in our ancestral territory. It's about making sure the tribes stay in their place and are not getting any kind of recognition beyond what they want us to get. And that's, um, that's really what it all boils down to at the end of the day. You know, in, in situations, you know, like that, I mean, that's just, that's just part of, um, and I'm going to bring the bad word up, uh, racism and the fact that the state has always uh, put barriers in our way and has always tried to wipe us out as a people. Um, and no matter what we do, uh, they're just going to, put something up there to, to stop it and to take away what we have. And they've never, never veered from that course. And, you know, and I said it before, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to, you know, look at a, an individual and say, you know, that individual's racist. Or that. I try to focus on um, the institutions that make these decisions. The institutions... Um, which are made up of people, we're, you know, we're 40 years away from being wards of the state, um, having Indian agents, and, you know, what are we, uh, you know, 50 years from being able to vote in this state. So we have, um, there's still very much an institutional mindset that projects this kind of racist policy behavior, and it's, again, it's about, um, I mean, when you look at the United Nations report on the Wabanaki, right, for example, I mean, anybody that looks at this objectively talks about human right violations. And that's when you take a people, an indigenous people from their territory, and you say, we're going to um, remove your cultural identity. I mean, there are very... I mean, it's very straightforward definition of of, um, of piece, pieces of genocide, right? You, you're mm-hmm. removing an entire culture, basically, from an area we've clearly been in for thousands and thousands of years. So that these are very serious issues, you know. So while the media and every and every news outlet are um, talking about water quality standards and you know who's going to get control of the Penobscot River and all of these other things. There are real, but the message that get, gets missed is these are real foundational, very serious issues that uh, that I believe, you know, 100 years from now is going to be looked at as a very shameful time. And I agree, and I, and I think that uh, institutional racism uh, comes into this, but uh, Maria's been chafing at the bits over here to say something. <laughs> sure. So go ahead, Maria. Um well, just in terms of, you know, why why the state needs to behave that way, I'm a historian, and so um, my mind always goes to history. And I think that the state of Maine has a lot to cover up because right from the get-go, um, the history of their treatment of the Native people in this territory was really egregious. In 1820, when the state of Maine um, first became a state, They had, um, you know, a number of agreements that they had to abide by, and one of them was that they would uh, follow all the obligations of the 1818 treaty between Massachusetts and the Penobscots. And in that um, 
in that treaty and also in their um, agreement to follow that treaty in 1820, uh, one of the things that needed to happen was that they were going to preserve our territory. We had four major um, townships um, reserved at that point in time in 1820. And by 1833, they were gone. And it was um, a very predatory, the history of how they sought to acquire that land. And um, you can read all about it in their own records, in their legislative resolves. Um, I won't get off on that topic. That's a whole other topic. But um, just for example, um, Penobscots, there were many Penobscots who, whose fight for their fisheries has cost them their lives. Um, Chief Antion Elmut in 1803 or 1804, traveled with a delegation um, of Penobscots to um, colonial government to um, to really complain about the, the desecration of their fisheries, their prime fisheries located at Shad Islands. And uh, Shad Islands is just immediately uh, downriver of Indian Island, and it's where the Old Town Dam is located now. That was their prime fisheries, and um, Auntie and Alma went down there to fight for those fisheries, and they just kept telling him that you sold those islands, and he kept arguing that those were supposed to have been, you know, reserved for us in the 1796 treaty. So there's this whole history of um, broken promises of deal-making and deal-breaking all throughout history, and um, they got to continue to cover their butts. And what's really... Uh, was shocking to me when I was learning about the history of Etienne Elmut. Um, he was replaced after he he ended up killing himself um, when he was away on this this trip fighting for the fisheries. He was so distraught, and um, at that point in time, the Penobscots exercised a um, hereditary chief system of governance, and so Etienne Elmut's son John Etienne became the chief. Um, you know, and so fighting at this most um, devastating period, these this dark period in Penobscot history where everything that they ever loved was being taken from them. And it's interesting to note that Chief John Atien, um, is the this was seven generations from Chief Francis, who we're talking with today. So Chief Francis is John Atien's seventh generation. We always talk about looking out for the seventh generation and keeping in mind um, a better way of life for the seventh generation. And so here we are, seven generations later, still fighting over the fisheries. I find that astounding. And then, of course, there was Saul Sabatis, who in 1807 insisted on fishing the way his grandfather and grandfathers before that had always fished. And he went out on Shad Islands and he fished and he was killed for it. And they found him downriver, um, beaten. So, you know, people have really stood up and fought for these fisheries for a good number of years, and we're still doing it. So, Kirk, I know that you don't have much time to talk to us, much longer. So uh, if you have something you would like more to say, go right ahead. Well, um, you know me, I'll talk all day, but I think... uh, (laughs) I think that, um, you know, Maria touches on a lot of extraordinary history here, sad history. And, you know, what are we to do, right, when um, when we have these ancestral mandates, we have 
a clear understanding of who we are and what our responsibilities are. You know, we often see, uh, oh, what are the tribes, you know, whining about now? Why, why do they think they're different? Why all of that stuff? Um, and this is not an issue of race, although some make it out to be. It's the unique and distinct people and culture that live in this state. And by and large, Maine people have responded overwhelmingly in support of us during this time. And, um, and Maria talks about the seventh generation and, um, you know, what those prophecies tell us is this is supposed to be a time of resolving these issues. And so um, we're going to work hard to do that. You know, when we have chiefs that have taken their own lives, when we have our people that have been killed over these very things, um, we can't just sit idly by and um, and not carry that torch forward. So um, we're doing everything we can uh, to be reasonable, um, to exercise good diplomacy, to uh, find good solutions. But at the end of the day, um, you know, that kind of um, commitment doesn't exist on the other side. And we've just gotten to a place, and you've seen it with the, the removal of the representatives, the all of those things. We've just gotten to a place where um, we can't exist in abusive relationships. And we tell our people all the time, you know, get away from that sort of thing. And that's what we need to do. And we need to focus on um, what's good for our people, what's good for our territories, and what's good for um, the future of the Penobscot Nation. And we can't get bogged down worrying about trying to get into the head of, think of uh, you know, the state when none of that really um, makes any sense to us. So it's a, um, so I believe it's tied the tribe up for a lot of years and exhausted the tribes in trying to find solutions. You know, we see it in a whole host of areas, you know, whether it's environmentally protecting our women, you know, through um, jurisdictional enhancements under VAWA. We see it with um, trying to protect our territory through disaster relief, uh, through the Stafford Act. We see it in this case in the Clean Water Act. We see it the economic disparities through the Indian Game and Regulatory Act. We see a whole, we see it fully across the board, and for me, um, it really points to a termination policy of the state of Maine to keep the tribes who have not progressed as much as we. And I'm really proud of this place because we have really educated people and we have really good institutions here. Not perfect, but we have really good institutions here that have. Um, created a lot of success here within the tribe um, despite these things and you can imagine without that layer of obstacles where the tribes of Maine could be today and where our people could be you know with educational outcomes and um, unemployment health disparities uh, you know youth um, youth issues around um, self-esteem and and just a whole host of things um, that we could be doing really good partners with the state instead you know we have to focus on the vibrant communities we have and make sure that we're doing the best we can to grow um with the tools that are available to us and i just think um you know as more and more people get educated on this they're really starting to see that um it's appalling i mean when you first talk to folks that represent other jurisdictions and indian tribes and all of those things um you know, they just, they can't even comprehend.
comprehend what you're talking about. It's like, how can that happen? You know, that that goes against federal law. It goes against uh, congressional mandates and acts. It goes against a whole host of Supreme Court decisions. It goes against, you know, the United Nations um, Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It goes against just about every um, formula out there as to how Native people are supposed to be treated and respected. And I think, um, you know, I think for Maine people, as Maria pointed out, they get tired of being represented with that behavior. Yeah. I mean, do you think, uh, you know, when you look at uh, things that are happening across the country, you know, with the, the law enforcement in Ferguson and that sort of stuff, with all the race riots going on and all the attention there, and things happen in the tribal uh, communities, uh, and I mean big things, that people get killed and they're treated the same way, but the tribes don't uh, get up and and scream and yell and, and have riots. Uh, why do you suppose that is? Well, you know, I just think... <laughs> Probably because they killed us off. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just think there's a historical trauma component there that that is genetically or whatever it is within us that we just internalize things. We just like, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, native people just have seen it all. They've heard it all and they they just internalize things and and move on. Right. And it's, it's not good and it's not healthy, but I think, um, I think you're right. I mean, we, we, what we've tried to start doing is, um, being more vocal and forming more partnerships and coalitions and, and bringing attention to these issues. You know, you talk about the law enforcement issues and you know, um, as well as I do, you know, in Maine's native territory, I mean, we have border um, territory. We have a whole host of things. You know, we have our communities are no different than any others. You know, we have, uh, you know, our share of drug abuse and, and drug related concerns and, um, in crime. So we're, you know, our communities have an effect on the entire state of Maine, but yet what we see is, um, is no attention given to uh, allowing the tribes to be as productive as they can in those areas either. When you look at, you know, the inability of us to be represented on the, despite the fact that we're forced under the settlement act to, uh, be trained at the Maine criminal justice Academy, very unique and distinct uh, law enforcement um, community within Maine's tribes, but yet we have no representation on that board. We have no say in the curriculum. There's no discussion on culture. There's no discussion on any of that. And we've tried for a few years now to get representation on that board, to be told no. And it was actually, if we got through the process this year, the governor said he would veto that. So, um, those are the types of things I just don't understand. I mean, I, I can understand at some level, um, you know, the fact that I don't understand it anymore. I understood it 15 years ago a little bit why you wouldn't want casinos in Maine. If the argument is, look, you know, we don't want this to be a gaming state. and um, But when you run in a $1 billion lottery, you have two um, state-sponsored casinos run by out-of-state companies, you know, one of them nine miles from our reservation, you know, and I'm not complaining about gaming. That's the last thing on my mind these days, but I'm just saying that um, the inequities are all there. And if people look at it, it's not the tribe 
deserve to be equal. We deserve opportunities. And uh, whether that's law enforcement, uh, jurisdiction to make um, families healthier, whatever it is, um, we deserve those opportunities. And that's what we're saying. And so if you keep blocking us from having a conversation and uh, about how to do that, you know, we have no choice but to um, be in these contentious kind of moments and that we're in now. Right. Can I respond to your your comment about why aren't we? Sure. Why aren't we rioting? <laughs> um, and my first thought when you said that is that's not our way. That, um, you know, everything throughout history has always indicated that Penobscots were a very peaceful people. And um, there's a word in our language, Sankawina Gwesawagan, and it's translated as the law of Penobscot society. And the root word in our law of society is peace. And so while we probably, I would be surprised to see us rioting. <laughs> I do think that we are rising and that a lot of people are rising with us. There's this one quote from the late 1700s that I love um, from the lieutenant chief at the time, John Neptune. He said, peace is good. These, my Indians, know it well. They smile under the shade of peace. And that was, you know, that was our culture before we had to deal with this colonial invasion, with this destruction of our territory, with the, the destruction of our, our rivers and, you know, the violence against our people. That at our core, we are a peaceful people. Okay. Uh, Kirk, I know you said you had to leave very soon. Yeah, I'm good for a few minutes. Okay. Uh, no, I and you know, and I I understand where what you're you're coming where you're coming from, Maria. Uh, that does not really explain uh, the rest of Indian country. Uh, why there has been no, you know, I, I guess there had been in the was in the seventies, uh, uh, the wounded knee and that sort of thing, and the Lots takeover in yeah. DC and. That didn't get us anywhere. No, and it's interesting to note that during that period of time in the in the 1970s, um, I heard it once said, Vine Deloria Jr., who is an excellent um, Native um, attorney and scholar, he said that the height of um, Native disrest, unrest, excuse me, the height of Native unrest and the height of uh, federal fear over that was in um, 1974. And that's the time when we were trying to negotiate our land claims. And so, you know, everything was stacked against us at that point in time. All over the United States, Native tribes are rising up. And so weren't we in, in asserting our claim to our Aboriginal territory, which had been stolen. And so, you know, they were just going around slamming the lids on all the tribes. And so nobody ever really got a fair shake. And we were trying to negotiate some sort of settlement during that time when when Indian tribes all over the, the country were just being shut down as best that they could. Yeah. Okay. Kirk? Yeah, no, I I think, you know, you talk about the late 60s and, and early 70s, you look at, uh, you know, what has happened um, what was happening at that time was common to every tribal nation in the country. You had uh, really fighting for core basic rights to exist, right? And so um, this is before.
today, though, are the effects of the behavior of states like Maine, right, is you've created a situation where there's so much economic disparity, even within Indian country. There's um, the issues are much, much different within Indian country. That commonality has gotten um, watered down to a lot of um, regional and even just tribal kind of differences over um, what makes, what the priorities are um, within every tribal community are just much, much different and they're vast today. So, um, so that's some of it, I think, but, you know, we are seeing nationally a lot of rallying around um, core issues that are, um, that are core basic tribal rights, the right to regain our territory, for example, through land to trust processes. You're seeing, um, you know, Indian country come together on ICWA attacks, you know, the child well, Indian Child Welfare Act. You're seeing Indian country come together on taxation issues and a whole host of things. So, um, so I think, um, you know, there's more and more frustration going going on within Indian country now, and I think you're going to see this more and more. The, um, you know, the mascot issues and a whole host of things that are that are happening. But the, um, but I think that, um, you know, you don't have to look over your shoulder too far uh, to stop patting yourself on the back for the successes to see that. Um, we're losing a lot of ground on on um, on these issues, especially as things get to the United States Supreme Court. You know, you you just had a few years ago um, uh, an Indian parent lose their kid uh, to an adoptive couple, and you you um, you know you've you've got more of those things going on um, throughout the country. Challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act. You have a mindset of some decision makers that um, would, would love to revisit that issue. Um, so I think uh, while we've had some successes, um, there's also, um, you know, a lot of setbacks going on as well. So, you know, we're seeing more and more in this economy clamoring for tribal territory, lack of respect for cultural resources, for things like... Um, you know, mining and other stuff that's going on throughout the country. And um, so, you know, and history has taught us that too, right? When resources are slim, um, you know, it's Indian country that usually pays the most during those times. And so I think, um, you know, it's a scary, you know, not every tribe in America um, has it rosy either. We're not the only ones that are um, struggling with issues. You know, there are a lot of tribes um, getting that are tied up in litigation as we speak and they're getting challenged by counties and the Supreme Court is ruling on things that allow individuals to have a say within tribal territories on tribal development. I mean, it's a, it's a scary time all over. And then we have this other layer of stuff here in Maine that uh, makes things really difficult for us. So I guess through that rant, it's, um, it's really, um, I think, important as Indian country looks at these issues that we we focus on these core. At the end of the day, you know, the casinos are going to come and go. The you know the smoke shops are going to come and go. The tax free sales are going to come and go. The all of that stuff is important because we're trying to um, you know 
regain ourselves in economics is is the reality of today. But at the same time, when all that goes away, you better have that core cultural identity in place because that makes us who we are. And uh, to me, um, that those are the issues where Indian country can be the loudest and you more most unified on. Yeah, and I I, I agree, but uh, you know I I think that until till we realize here in Maine what Maine is doing to the Maine tribes, until the rest of the country realizes what Maine is doing to the Maine tribes, we're going to be stuck, mm-hmm. uh, and we need help. And here's the thing, you know, we are isolated from the rest of Indian country, you know, the the Gaming Act and and the Clean Water and the VAWA and all this other stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, the other tribes do have their issues, but we are stuck way beyond where they are. They've made progress, and we're still here. And go ahead, Maria. <laughs> I just want to say that, um, call me Pollyanna, but I'm feeling kind of hopeful right now <laughs> because we've really engaged a whole lot of people in the state of Maine. It has always been um, my belief that people are doing the best they can based on what they know and that people just have no idea. And so through so many educational attempts, um, and especially with ally organizations uh, taking on our cause for their organizations, we're really seeing a big uprising here in the state um, with Maine citizens standing up for the tribe. And as you've been saying all along, um, this isn't a uh, Indian white thing. This isn't a tribal government, state government thing. Um, this is water. This is life. And people are starting to uh, realize, um, you know, our common grounds, our common waters there, and we're all standing up together. You mentioned your uh, conspiracy theory. I have um, one just real quick. I know we're running out of time, but, um, you know, there's there's huge threats of industri- industrialization that's um, taking place right now across the state. There's the threat of a privately owned east-west industrial highway and corridor and pipeline that's being proposed to bisect the state and that would completely ruin our traditional hunting and gathering territories. And um, a second and possibly related battle is the expansion of the state-owned mega dump, uh, Juniper Ridge Landfill, which is located in the wetland just north of Indian Island. And so this plan for the state-owned dump is to add another 8.4 million tons of waste um, to that site and to create an industrial methane gas plant. Now, that might be some reasons why it's important to wrest control of the waters away from the tribes, because um, if we keep... um, you know, claiming our sustenance fishing rights, if we keep claiming our territory, uh, that will make it a lot more difficult for them to trash it in that way. And people in the state of Maine who are involved in these fights see that connection. And so we, um, the Penobscot Nation, is on the minds and in the hearts of many, many thousands of people across the state and, and countless social justice and environmental justice organizations. And so I'm seeing that from where I sit, this real coming together, this coalescing around the water and, and rising up. Yeah. Kirk, any last uh, words of wisdom here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, uh, um, you know, I, I would just agree that it's also a great, you know, while it's very stressful here, and as Maria said, this is not a political issue. It's not a government issue. Um, this is a way of life issue for should be for everyone, but certainly is for the Penobscots and, um, you know, people, it's a very stressful time, but it's also a very hopeful time. We feel,
hundreds of years is we're going to overcome. We're still going to be here. We're going to continue to uh, do everything we can to protect ourselves. But mostly, you know, I'll just say again that, you know, these are vibrant communities, Maine tribal communities, and our community is has amazing people in it that will, um, you know, it's not us uh, guys in leadership and girls in leadership that are, you know, sitting here um, being expected to have all the answers. This tribal community is responding, and they're responding in a very educated and responsible way that is lending uh, a great deal of benefit to these battles. And uh, so I know long after I'm the chief here, we're going to be in great hands, and we're going to have um, we're going to have a community that is uh, that is really thinking about the future of the tribe. And I'm really, really just proud of where I am in life at this time and uh, being able to participate in it. Okay. Well, thank you, Kirk, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you both. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Maria, last word. Um, just wanted to share in closing that our uh, traditional teachings uh, tell us that um, after, after the rivers run bitter with disrespect and the fish become too poisoned to eat and uh, the seas run black, that then is supposed to come a time of great healing. And our traditional teachings tell us that the great healing um, is supposed to start in the east and spread across Turtle Island. So um, I find a lot of hope in that prophecy. And uh, if you're not doing anything on Saturday, September 19th, um, there's going to be a Justice for the River Flotilla off the Bangor waterfront in Bangor from 11 to 1230. Okay. Thank you, Maria. Uh, you've been listening to WERU, Webinaki Windows. Um, I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. Our engineer is Amy Brown. I want to thank Maria Gerard and Chief Kirk Francis for joining us today. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>